The four most terrifying words in the English language can be, what do you think? Somehow being put on the spot in a meeting with colleagues or in a job interview or even by other parents on the sideline of your kid's soccer game can have the effect of turning your thoughts to jelly. Public speaking is more feared than bugs, needles or heights, according to some research. And even small talk can be just as painful. But you can prepare for spontaneity, says Matt Abrahams, a lecturer at Stanford University and host of the podcast Think Fast, Talk Smart. He offers the latest science and skills to help even the most anxious speaker in his new book, which is called Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. And Matt Abrahams joins me now. Hi. Hi, great to be with you, Jesse. Thanks. Actually, most conversations put us on the spot, don't they? Because communication, sort of by definition, is spontaneous, unplanned. That's correct. You know, yet most of us, when we think about communication, we think about those planned presentations, the pitches we do, the meetings with agendas. But you're right. Most of our communication in our personal and professional lives is spontaneous. It happens in the moment. And sometimes it goes well, sometimes it goes not so well. It's not often scarring, but you do have an example in the book of Irma, who actually had a moment in high school that ended up affecting her for the rest of her life. Absolutely. So when Irma came to me, she was a grandmother. She was in her 70s. And she told me about the time when she was a young girl in high school. She contributed in her class. And the teacher stopped and looked at her and said, that is the stupidest thing anyone has ever said (sighs) in any of my classes. And this was so scarring to her that she completely redirected her life so she would never have to be in front of people again. She became a research librarian And she came to me because at her granddaughter's wedding, she thought she would be asked to say something. And she wanted to say something very heartfelt. And she was so nervous just as a result of what happened when she was a young child. Yeah. So so this is important stuff. Um, Presumably, you got a bit of practice early because your surname starts with AB. So if they did things alphabetically, you would have been pretty much first in line. I have always, Jesse, gone first. I always (laughs) knew where I would sit in school. I have always gone first. So I've had a lot of practice uh, within the moment speaking, but it it still can be very jarring and scary. Yeah. You're uh, at Stanford, um, where a famous name even here in New Zealand. Presumably the students there are smart enough, articulate enough, um, confident enough that when you call on them uh, and cold call them in the middle of a lecture, they can give you a pretty good answer. Unfortunately, that was not always the case. So about nine years ago, the deans of the business school, where I have been for almost 15 years now, came to me and said, we have this problem. Our amazingly bright students who know the answer to these questions are struggling when that professor points at them and says, what do you think? So they asked if I could create some content to help. And that was really the genesis of everything that's in Think Faster, Talk Smarter. I did a deep dive into research in psychology, anthropology, neuroscience, even acting and improvisation, and pulled together a methodology that every Stanford MBA within the first three weeks of being on campus has the opportunity to take. And we find that the students feel more comfortable and confident in those cold calling moments. And the professors are finding or have found 
that the students' responses are more thoughtful and thorough. So this is something that started with a very specific academic need, and I've been now championing this methodology all over the place, and people are finding it very useful. Some people are naturals, though, eh? People who, if I know someone who's great at thinking on their feet, what do those people have that the rest of us don't? Well, I think a little bit of it is experience. They've done it a lot. Yeah. But also, I think there are some personality factors that go in, extroversion, willingness to take risks. But the reality is this, you know, the book and the methodology really have a lot of counterintuitive ideas in it. And one of them is we can all get better. Many of us feel like you're either born with the gift mm. of gab or not, and we either can do this spontaneous stuff or not. And that's simply not true. I have seen it in my own personal life, in the lives of the students I teach, the people I coach. We can all get better. People start at different parts, places on the on the journey, but all of us can improve. Yeah, and a lot of people listening would might say, "Well, hey, I, I'd probably be okay at speaking uh, if I could just get rid of this anxiety." You say actually yeah. the goal isn't to eradicate anxiety, but to prevent it from hampering us. How do you do that? Yeah, so I. I think anxiety is inherent in communication. Those of us who study this think it's part of being human is to be nervous mm. uh, in front of others, but we can manage it. And again, I don't think we can ever overcome it, nor do I think we'd want to. It actually gives us energy, helps us focus, tells us what we're doing is important, but we want to manage it so it doesn't manage us. And there are very specific things we can do to manage both symptoms and sources to help ourselves feel better. You've said there is a significant gap that exists between how we see things and how others see us doing those things. So you have to begin by recognizing what you call the real versus feel gap. Yes, absolutely. So we have access and insight into things that others who are hearing us speak don't. We know what we wanted to say versus what we did say. We can feel what's going on in our bodies in terms of our rapid heart rate or breathing quickly. So there's a whole bunch of information we have access to and expectations we have that our audiences don't. So we are not the best judges of our communicative performance and if we're coming off as confident or not. My Stanford MBA students and the folks I coach, I always will digitally record people and have them watch it. And, and almost everybody has the same realization. I looked more confident and sounded better than I thought I did. And that's, again, because we have much more insight than those watching us. So if people take away nothing but from our conversation, it's that, that you, you appear more confident than you feel and you can get better at this if you try. Actually, for a lot of people, the enemy isn't the audience. It's that inner voice inside their head, right? Saying, yeah. you're doing a bad job of this. You sound terrible. Everyone can see how unprepared you are. How do you tame that voice? Yeah, so our, our inner voice is, gets in the way a lot. And there are a few things that we tend to focus on or say that we can we can change. So first and foremost, most of us want to, when we communicate, do it right, whatever that means. So we strive for perfection. And I'm here to tell you, Jesse, after doing this for decades, there is no right way to speak. There are better ways or worse ways, but no one right way. And that pressure we put on ourselves to get it right really, really hampers us. It's very simple. If part of your brain is focusing on judging and evaluating everything you say, you only have part of it able to focus on what you're actually saying. It's a cognitive bandwidth 
with issue. So we need to dial that down. That's the first mindset shift is really just to say, hey, I'm just going to get this done. I have the audacity in front of my MBA students to start the very first class of every first term by saying maximize mediocrity. <laughs> you should see their jaws drop. They're just they're flabbergasted. They've never been told that. But the, the logic behind it is when you strive for perfection, you get in the way. So I like to say it's about connection, not perfection, maximize mediocrity, and you free up cognitive resources to do it really well. So that's the first mindset. And then the second mindset is we see these circumstances is very threatening and challenging. When you ask me a question, I feel like I have to give the right answer. I feel like I'm being tested. When you ask me for feedback, I want to give you the best feedback. When we're having small talk, I want to be the most interesting person in the room. And this puts a lot of pressure on ourselves. So we need to see these as opportunities, not threats and challenges. So we have to remind ourselves that I can connect, I can learn, I can extend and expand, even in the most challenging situations. There's some value to me and to you in that. So if we remind ourselves that we have value to bring, that there's opportunity, that it's about connection, not perfection, we can actually manage a lot of the negative mindset that goes on. Striving for, for mediocrity, you, you point out, um, it doesn't mean that you're mediocre. It just means that you turn the volume down on some of those voices in your head or, or some of those pressures to be magnificent and when you turn that volume right. down you leave room for some of the more useful stuff that's absolutely right yes i am certainly not saying that we just want to be mediocre but when we take the pressure off to be perfect then we can do really great things i'm talking to matt abraham's uh, lecturer at stanford university host of the podcast think fast talk smart and his new book is called think faster talk smarter how to speak successfully when you're put on the spot. I'd love to have a look at some of these um, steps that you suggest for better communication. Um, Matt, choose chunky over smooth. Can you give us a bit of an idea of that one? <laughs> Absolutely. So when we communicate, We've talked a lot about mindset, we've talked about anxiety, but a big part of being able to communicate effectively in the moment or even planned is to be structured. You need to have a logic, a structure. You have a logic and structure to the questions you're asking me. When I respond, I try to package them up in a way that's interesting for people and, and so they can really understand them. Having a logical connection of ideas makes sense. So in other words, in this packaging, we're chunking information up into logical connections. Many of us, when we're put on the spot, we take our audiences on the journey of our discovery of what we're saying, and we just list a whole bunch of information. And all of us have suffered through people who list too much and ramble. So when you actually chunk logical information together, let me give you a very concrete example. If you've ever watched an advertisement or done a pitch for anything, you've probably used a structure called problem solution benefit. Here's an issue, challenge, or problem. Here's how we're solving it. And here's the benefit of doing mm. so. Each one of those is a logical chunk that connects to the next. Beyond being logical and, and conforming to what our brains like to learn from structure, it also helps us remember in psychology for a long time, we've known about what are called primacy and recency effects. In other words, we learn what we hear first and last more than anything huh. else. And we remember it more. Yeah. When you chunk something, in other words, not just a list, but when you chunk something, you're creating many more beginnings and endings. So you're actually helping your audience remember it, not only by putting it in a logical structure, but by giving them more beginnings and endings. And those of us who communicate effectively in the moment do a really good job of structuring information. 
there's a suggestion here to see the opportunities over the challenges. Um, I think this could be quite a breakthrough for a lot of people. You coach executives on doing Q&A after a presentation, uh, which I guess is a scary bit because you can prepare for the presentation but not necessarily for the Q&A. And, and you're surprised how adversarial they seem about the idea of taking questions from an audience, whether it's media or investors or whatever. Yes. So many of us see it, uh, many of the executives I coach and I coach many, they see it as very challenging because as you said, they don't know what's coming. They don't know what the best way to respond is. They don't know what the follow-ups to the follow-up questions will be. So they get quite anxious. And that's where I tell them to really be present, be open, see these as opportunities to extend and expand. It changes not only your demeanor, but it changes your body posture. We tend to open up more. Our tone is more collaborative. We give answers that have more detail. When you see things as an opportunity, even if it's a really threatening and hard question, it changes not just the quality of the answers, but the quality of our experience in answering those questions. So I really encourage people to see these things as positive. What is the not yet mindset? Ah, thank you. So there are several ways to develop an opportunistic mindset that I've just discussed. And uh, one of them is to invoke something that comes from the research of Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck has done a tremendous job of really explicating and explaining growth mindset, the ability to learn and adapt. Many of us feel like we're just born the way we are. And if I can't do something, I'm never going to be able to do it. A growth mindset says we can learn and develop. And there are many tools that she's uh preaches. And one of them is this notion of not yet. Just because you didn't do something well doesn't mean you won't ever be able to do it. It just means not yet. So it serves as a motivation. It ser serves not to discourage us. So if I give you feedback that I feel, oh, just didn't quit, quite hit the mark, instead of beating myself up and saying, I'll never be good at giving feedback, I just say, not yet. Next time I'm going to work on these three things and I'll get better at it. So I love this not yet mindset. And it is one of many mindsets that can help us. They're mindset tools that can help us take an opportunistic approach. I'll give you one other. Anybody who's ever heard of the world of improvisation is probably familiar with the yes and mm -hmm. mindset. So when something presents itself to us, we embrace it. We say yes and. And that's a great way to look at spontaneous speaking. Even if you and I are having a combative conversation, the yes and approach says, let's look for where we do have agreement, where we are seeing things similarly, and let's start from there. So not yet, yes and, and others can really help us be focused and opportunistic. One of the things I hear a lot of lately is the power of story. And um, you, you kind of take that uh, theme and... You say it's slightly different. You say craft a simple narrative structure, um, which does sound quite hard, but it's actually quite simple advice, right? Well, it is. You know, I, if we really think about the things that are most memorable to us, they're packaged up in a nice story. And our brains are wired for story. Humans have evolved to pay attention to things and remember things that are told in the story format. We don't do well with bullet points and lists. So, in fact, we call long-term memory episodic memory, episodes, beginning, middles, and ends. Huh. So anytime you can put your information into a structure that has a logical flow helps. My favorite structure in the whole world is three simple questions. What? So what? Now what? Yeah. What is your information, your idea, your product, your service, your belief? 
The so what is why is it important to the person you're talking to? And the now what is what comes next? In fact, Jesse, many of my responses to your questions have been packaged in this way. The what is my answer? The so what is why it's important? And then the now what is what people can do with it? So just using those three simple questions is a great example of a story or narrative that you tell in response to feedback, in response to questions, in response to small talk. It can be used in lots of ways in lots of places. What do you mean when you say, tell the time, don't build the clock? (laughs) I am laughing. This is advice my mother has given me all throughout my life. I know she didn't create that phrase, but it, it really rings loudly in my ears. Many of us say more than we need to say. We are recognizing what we want to say as we're saying it. So we we tend to be long-winded. We want to be concise and clear. I firmly believe the most precious commodity we have in the world today is attention. Our attention is constantly being pulled in different directions. One way we make sure our messages land with our audience is to be concise and clear. I call this the F word of communication, and it's not that naughty one, it's focus. So tell the time, don't build the clock is a reminder to be focused in what we're saying, to tell the time. How do we do that? There's several ways. One, think about what's most important and relevant to your audience and build your messaging around that. People pay attention to what's important to them. Have a clear goal for what you're trying to achieve, be it planned or spontaneous. A goal to me has three parts. What do you want people to know? How do you want them to feel? And what do you want them to do? And when you think of the no feel, do, then that also helps you focus. So we want to be focused. We want to tell the time. It helps get our message across and it helps make it memorable. We've been talking mostly in the business context so far, but what's your advice for small talk, which can for some people be just as brutal as giving a speech? Oh, absolutely. For some, it's even worse. So I've got three things I'd like to talk about with small talk before I even get started. Good things, big things happen in small talk. A Mm. lot of us see small talk as a necessary evil, Mm. chit-chat that we just have to do in order to get to the good stuff. We can learn about ourselves and others. We can form new friendships and connections. Small talk can be a really big help to us. The biggest thing I'd say about small talk, I learned from somebody on my podcast I I interviewed on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Her name is Rachel Greenwald. She's a fascinating person. She's a professional matchmaker and an academic. Really Mm -hmm. interesting. And she said in small talk, the goal is to be interested, not interesting. Many of us feel a pressure to, to, it's like playing tennis, to say the right thing that goes across the net and scores. And that's not the way to see it. This way to see it is more like here in the States, we have this game we call hacky sack. We have this little ball that we pass back and forth. And the whole goal is to keep the ball off the ground and you do it with your feet. And to be successful at hacky sack, you need to serve it to the next person in a way that makes it easy for them to take it and hit it back to you. And that's how small talk should be. We need to lead with curiosity and questions. And when we do that, it goes more smoothly. Now, the biggest challenges people report to me about small talk are two things, getting into it and getting out of it. Hmm. I encourage people not to do what I call doom loops. A doom loop is where I say, hey, Jesse, how are you? And you say, I'm fine, Matt. How are you? Well, we're now no 
farther down that journey than <laughs> we when we started. So it's much better for us to talk about something in the moment or shared experience. So I might, if we're coming from a convention where somebody did a speech, we can talk about the speech. I might say, what did you think? Or what I did when I was at an event once, I looked around and everybody was wearing different colored blue shirts. So I went up to this person I didn't know and I said, did I miss the memo on the blue shirts? And we had a lovely conversation after it. So highlight something in the moment that's a shared experience to start them and then to get out of them. Most of us rely on biology. I've got to go to the toilet. I've got to, I'm hungry. I want to get some something to drink. Yeah. It's dangerous. I, I did this once where I said, oh, I, I need to go use the toilet. And the person I was talking to said, oh, okay, me too. And all of a sudden my attempt to get out led, led to another longer conversation. <laughs> so Rachel Greenwald again has this great technique. She calls it the white flag approach, not surrender, but the white flag is in auto racing. The last lap, before the last lap, they wave the white flag. And here's how it works, Jesse. If we were in conversation, I might say, you know what, Jesse, this has been great. But in a few minutes, I want to go talk to those people over there. But before I leave, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about a certain aspect of the show that you host. So I'm signaling in advance that I'm going to leave in a few minutes. But I come back with something that engages us both in a conversation. When you're done giving me your contribution, I just say, that's amazing. That's great. Thanks, Jesse. I'm going to go talk to them over there. You're prepared for it to end. You feel comfortable because I feel good that you know I'm leaving, so I'm not abandoning you. And you have been able to form plans of where you're going next. It's the most elegant way to end chit-chat that I know. Yeah, I love so that. So taking those three things together help. Yeah. Um, and just a quick word on job interviews. I anything that you have yeah. learned uh, in your travels that might be useful for people who are heading into a job interview and are a little bit worried about how it might go? Yes. Earlier, I talked about how there's some counterintuitive notions in the Think Faster, Talk Smarter book. And one of them is that we can actually prepare to be spontaneous. And a lot of people say that's strange. But if you think about it, if you've ever played a sport or a musical instrument, if you're a jazz musician, for example, you practice first and then you go and do the event. So the event itself, the sport, whatever, is spontaneous, but the preparation helps you do well. When you go to a job interview, you should first do research on the company and the position. So you go in understanding what they do and you should think about what are key themes that I want to get across. Maybe I'm really good at problem solving or I'm very reliable and detail oriented. Those are themes. And with each theme, you stockpile specific concrete examples, stories you can tell, data you can give, third party testimonials, like if you won an award and you stockpile them. So in the moment when somebody asks you a question, I am simply assembling what I have previously thought. I think, oh, this is a question about this theme. With this theme, I know I have these few examples or stories I can tell, and I put them together into an answer that's useful. The goal of storytelling is to, I'm sorry, the goal of interviewing is to tell stories that your interviewer can then turn around and tell others who have to help make the decision to hire you. Often the person you interview with is not the hiring person. They have to go talk to other people. So you have to equip them with detailed information that they can share about you. So if we do some pre-work, we create our themes, and we have some stockpiled information, we will do better in job interviews. Do you approve of using AI to practice your small talk or maybe some of these situations we've been talking about? I get lots of questions about artificial intelligence, and I have to be very frank. I, I am optimistic, but I am I, I, the jury is still out for me. There are certainly ways that we can leverage AI to help with our spontaneous speaking. A great way to do it is to use generative AI, ChatGPT, BARD, whatever your tool of choice is. Say, if you're interviewing, you say, interviewing for a job uh, at this company in this role, generate five questions that I might get asked. So it's a good tool to help bring up questions. It's a good tool to help 
help you be more concise. So if you write something, you can plug it in and say, say this in a hundred fewer words than I typed in, and then look at it and think about what's it doing to prioritize. So that trains your brain on how to, to prioritize. So generative AI, I believe, can be helpful when it comes to our spontaneous speaking. In terms of communication in general, I'm still a little hesitant on certain things, but but I am curious and, and staying tuned to see how generative AI plays out in the next few months and years. Hey, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you, Matt. I've been talking to Matt Abrahams. Uh, he's a lecturer at Stanford University, host of the podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart. And his new book is called Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. Nice to talk to you. And thanks so much for the uh, the deep thought and the advice today. Thank you, Jesse. It's been a true pleasure.